Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for reading that list of things about me that I gave you. <laughs> Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. Uh, well, as Carrie said, my name is uh, Peter, if we haven't met before, uh, and I have the, the privilege of serving as one of the deacons here at the Mountain Church, uh, and I'm really excited to get to preach to you guys today. Uh, really excited about the, the passage, uh, but also just for the opportunity to get to uh, to read from God's Word uh, and to, to share what I feel the, the Spirit's put in my heart this week uh, and what, uh, what Paul's saying here. Um, today we are continuing in the book of Colossians, which Daniel introduced us to last week. Uh, and last week, uh, Daniel shared that, that Paul is writing this letter in part due to some false teachings and struggles that are happening in the church at Colossae. Uh, likely there's a, uh, an, a third-party presence in the church, a shaman or a, a false spiritual leader uh, who's claiming to have uh, some sort of insight into the spiritual realm uh, and advising the Colossians to perform these certain rituals or acts, calling on other spiritual forces to give them additional protection from uh, uh, demonic forces or, or things of the like, uh, and maybe even been in, involving uh, invoking the power or protection of angels. Um, so that was one of the things Daniel touched on last week. Uh, this week, as our friend Carrie just read for us, we are looking at verses 15 through 23. And if you look in your Bible, you may see that the heading, at least in my ESV Bible, is titled The Preeminence of Christ. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely didn't know what preeminence meant uh, before this week. At least I couldn't have given you a good definition of it without reusing the word preeminence. Uh, so I looked it up, uh, and preeminence means surpassing all others, very distinguished in some way, having paramount rank, dignity, or importance. Some synonyms wow, of preeminent include greatest, leading, foremost, best, finest, and chief. And as I was thinking on this word and thinking about this passage, a story from my, my childhood came to mind. I'm going to pick on Ben for a minute. Not really pick on Ben. Uh, if you don't know, Ben and I uh, are lifelong friends. We met in kindergarten. Uh, we realized we lived in the same neighborhood, and the rest is pretty much history. Uh, and as kids do, we used to play imagination games all the time when we were growing up. And one of our favorite games uh, for a season was, I forget if we were superheroes or like secret agents, uh, but we had powers. You know? And so each time we'd, we'd you know, start to play this game, and for some reason, Ben would always get to pick his power first. When we were at, at his house, it was because it was his house. And when we were at my house, because he was the guest. Uh, so, so Ben would always get to pick his power first, you know, one way or the other. And I, it was, I remember it so clearly every time I'd say, okay, well, I am the smartest person in the world. It's like, great. So then I would be my turn to say, well, I'm the strongest person in the world. You know, kind of like equal balancing. And then say, okay. It's like, well, I'm also very strong. And there's mainly like a couple things that, that you can lift or do that I can't do. Say, okay, well, I'm also very smart. There's a, only a couple things that you know that I don't know. And we would have this back and forth before we, before we even started playing the game uh, of trying to see which one of us was better. We would have gadgets or like, you know, we played with spy toys when we were kids. So, you know, we would, those then would have powers and we would be this competition. We were seeking to assert ourselves as which one was ultimately superior than the other which was a constant childhood struggle, but we're looking at this story specifically. Uh, but in our passage today, Paul is describing Christ's preeminence, how Christ is ultimately superior, and he doesn't need to split hairs here. He doesn't need to put other people's giftings down uh, or uh, 
try to, to make Christ look better. He just gets to talk about the awesomeness of Jesus and what he has done for us. So let's go ahead and dive into our text, uh, starting in verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So right off the bat, we see Paul listing character traits of Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the image of the invisible God here is referring to a few different things. Uh, first, most obviously, is that Jesus uh, was a, a fully man, as well as being fully God, and therefore he was created, his physical manness was created in the image of God, uh, just as we all are as people. Um, he was visible and tangible, able to be seen and touched. He was, as John 1.14 says, the word become flesh among us. But equally as true is that Jesus being the Im- image of the invisible God is not a statement which only became true upon his birth as a human baby. He has existed as the image of God since before creation. He was the image that we as humans were created in. And I think this is what Paul is emphasizing here, that Christ has existed as this image of the invisible God since before creation even began. And next, Paul describes him as the firstborn among all creation. And here what Paul is not saying is that uh, Jesus was the first thing that was created. He's not saying that we are all God's children and Christ was born first and then the rest of us were born you know, on earth. No, Jesus is the eternal son of God the Father and is a forever part of the Trinitarian God. What this statement is pointing us to though is that Jesus has the, the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, specifically a, a firstborn son of a king or a ruler. So he is the ultimate heir. No one has greater claim to all creation than Jesus. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And in that first sentence, there are two words here that Paul is emphasizing. And those are the words by and all. He says that by Jesus, all things were created. So again, we have an additional argument here to Christ's preexistence that since Christ created all things, he in fact was not created. He is the creator, not the creation. There is nothing in this world, past, present, or future, that can claim it was not created by Christ. And Paul even lists off some of those things here, things in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, he says, were created through him. And I think in part, this speaks to some of the false teaching that Daniel was talking about last week. Uh, The Colossians were believing these other spiritual beings or rituals would provide them greater favor or protection than Jesus would. But Paul is saying that everything in existence was created by Christ, and therefore nothing can be better than him. But not only does he say that things were created by Jesus, all things, but they were also created for him. So Jesus is not only the author of our creation, but the purpose of creation for his glory. Next in verse 17, he says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And here Paul is just 
reaffirming uh, the truths that he's shown us in verses 15 and 16. In verse 15, he says uh, that he is before all things, reaffirming Christ's preexistence. And then he says that in him all things hold together, which reaffirms Christ's cosmic significance as creator that we see in verse 16. So reaffirming Christ's preexistence, reaffirming Christ's cosmic significance as creator, but also reminding us that Jesus both sustains and maintains his creation, that there is nothing outside of his control within creation. At this point in our text, we come to a transition of sorts. Verses 15 through 17, Paul has been kind of talking about the original creation of the world, or the old creation, if you will. Uh, But in verses 18 through 20, we're going to see Paul start to talk about uh, characteristics of Jesus in regard to a new creation that was only made possible through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this new creation is, is the church and the new covenant. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into verse 18. He says, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So as you said, we're moving into talking about this new creation that's been made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and this new creation being the church and the new covenant. Uh, and of the church, Paul says that Jesus is the head. Uh, so looking at the illustration of uh, the church being a body, the head is what provides, is, is the gateway for nourishment to the body, right? We eat food, food makes us grow one way or the other. Uh, it keeps us alive, sustains us, gives us fuel, Uh, But the head is also what uh, intakes information and gives direction to the body. We see with our head, we we hear things, we see dangers, we we tell our arms and legs to move. So Christ both uh, sustains the church as well as directs and leads the church. And next we come to this super confusing term, at least to me, firstborn among the dead. What in the world is that supposed to mean? Didn't Jesus raise from the dead? (laughs) Uh, Just three verses ago in verse 15, we talked that Paul states Jesus is the firstborn among the living and now is saying that he's firstborn among the dead. Well, just as we talked about with verse 15, this term firstborn here means the same thing. It's not talking about Christ being literally born. It's saying that he has the rights of a firstborn son. Uh, But here specifically, he's highlighting this new creation that we're talking about and that it was only made possible through Christ's death, restating that no one has a greater claim to this new covenant, to the church, than Christ. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So again, we see Jesus being described as the image of God um, or that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell within him, uh, which then points to the fact that Jesus, as being fully man, was the the physical image of God, the perfect image of God within a human being, both in, in appearance and in action. But now following his life, death, and resurrection, he is also reconciling to himself all of the things that he originally created. So within the new creation, within that new covenant, he is reconciling the original creation to himself. But it's not just a restoration of creation, it's a restoration of peace within his creation. Uh, 
His blood on the cross uh, has defeated sin and death, has defeated the chaos caused by the curse that was brought on by our original sin. And he is now restoring things to the way they were always intended to be. At this point, we see Paul switch again uh, from talking about the characteristics of Jesus to now talking about, uh, to now addressing the Colossians, addressing the church directly. He begins in verse 21 saying, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So not only has Jesus reconciled us, uh, not only has he, he reconciled us to himself, brought peace to creation, but he specifically calls out that we, his people, are in need of this reconciliation as well. He, I mean, he calls it out right there that, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, we have separated ourselves from Christ through our sin, uh, and without intervention, we would remain apart from him for all eternity. But he has chosen to include us in this reconciled creation. He has chosen to create, through his life, death, and resurrection, this new covenant that we get to take part in. Uh, and furthermore, we see here that not only has he reconciled us, but it's, it's for a purpose. It's because he desires to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before God. He desires to redeem us to himself so that he can present us before his Father. Uh, when I got to this part in the, in the passage that I was preparing my sermon this week, I couldn't help but think of my, my oldest son, Titus. Uh, Titus has an incredible, amazing imagination. I love watching him play. He, uh, he loves to, to mix worlds, if you will, as he plays with his toys. And uh, one of my favorite things he does is he, he loves to take random toys and create them into something new. Like he'll go find something random in his room, and he, all of a sudden it's on his pirate ship, and it's like the, the ship's new guns. Or he'll be playing with his Legos and he'll add rocket boosters to his new recycling truck. Because what recycling truck doesn't need rocket boosters, right? Uh, and along with playing with these things, as happens with kids, a lot of times the, what he's created will break down or he'll, he'll lose a piece. Uh, he'll lose one of the secret weapons. And it's like the game can't continue until Titus finds uh, all the different things he had that make up you know, the, the exact specific random game that he was playing with these items. And so he'll, he'll look for them or he'll recreate it. Uh, and eventually he'll usually succeed. Uh, and upon doing that, uh, what he almost always does is he, he comes and he wants to show it to me. Just like he did when he created it the first time. You know, he made it the first time and he shows me, dad, look at my pirate ship and these cannons and all these things. Well, then it breaks and he brings it back. And he's like, dad, look, I, I remade my toy. They're like, I remade my, my recycling truck or I made it even better. He's proud that he fixed what he made and he wants to show it to his dad. Uh, and as Daniel says, all illustrations break down at some point, but I see this concept here that, that Christ created all things. He created us, the heavens, the universe, and everything in between. In our sin, we blemished his creation. We ruined it. We broke it, not him. But through his life, death, and resurrection, he has fixed it. He is reconciling to himself all that he has made so that he can present us as blameless and holy and above reproach to God the Father. What an incredible creator. Finally, in verse 23, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So up until now, everything in this passage has been about Jesus. Character traits of Jesus, uh, how Christ relates to the Colossians or the church. Um, But here we see Paul calling out the responsibility of the church, the responsibility of, of the church in Colossae, but also us. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. And as I was reading this, it's, it's easy for me to see this as a conditional statement, right? As if we need to earn the reconciliation that Paul is talking about in verses 21 and 22. You know, you, a person might read it in their mind like, you, were, you who were alienated and hostile in mind, uh, but Jesus has reconciled you to himself uh, to present you as holy and blameless before God as long as you live a perfect life and don't do anything wrong for the rest of your days. No, that's not what Paul is saying here. This is actually meant to be a reminder and an encouragement to the church, not a call to just do better and be better. Paul is urging the Colossians to continue in the faith that Jesus blessed them with through his saving work on the cross. He continues by charging them to be rooted in the gospel as well, not shifting from it. And again, this may be a specific charge, going back to those false teachings, charging them not to to shift to the right or the left as as any new uh, idea or random thought comes into into town. Paul might be saying, hey, don't shift off this gospel. Don't feel the need to do these special rituals or forces. Don't be swayed or lured by each new false teacher that comes into town offering the next key to enlightenment, Um, but be rooted in Christ. And I, I love this part. The, the tense of these verbs that Paul is using here indicates that he fully expects and believes that the Colossians are going to do these things. This isn't some desperate call for them to, to see Jesus and to believe in what he's done for them. He's just reminding them of the gospel that they already know and believe in their hearts. Reminding them of the faith which God has blessed them with and encouraging them to live out of that I think he's also reminding them that they don't need to do anything else but live out of their faith in Jesus. There aren't more rituals or things we need to do to protect ourselves or uh, to anything we need to accomplish to be saved. There's nothing we need to add onto the saving work of Christ. We don't need anything else but Jesus. He continues in verse 23 by reiterating three logical arguments that he actually stated in in the beginning of the book, which Daniel went over last week. In verses five through eight of Colossians, Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epiphas, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Paul's three logical arguments that he's using here are one, that you have heard and believed this gospel before. This isn't new. This is something that you've experienced and lived in. Two, this gospel is spreading and bearing fruit throughout the world. Kind of highlighting a a spiritual aspect of this, that, that something is growing this gospel. This gospel is powerful. It's bearing fruit. There's effects coming from it. Uh, And three, uh, Paul calls on uh, the experience of the teacher they've been blessed with, that God granted them a teacher, Epiphas, to show them the grace of God and truth of the gospel. 
And now, back to our passage, verse 23, Paul restates these same three concepts. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that, one, you previously heard, reminding them again of the truth they know in the gospel, two, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, reminding them of the power and the fruit of the gospel throughout the world, and three, which I, Paul, became a minister, here placing his own apostolic authority over this teaching. Essentially, Paul is adding in this argument of why would you replace something that is of God, something that you know and have experienced, over something that has been created by man? Why would you replace something that has been given to you by God by something else from man? And this is my prayer for us this week, church, that we would not seek to add anything else to the saving work of Jesus. We don't need to worry about appearing perfect or having each piece of our lives put together just right. We don't need to stress about being good enough or, or knowing enough in regard to our salvation because it's not about how hard we work or what all we accomplish. It's about living our lives out of our faith in Christ. This entire passage up to verse 23 Paul is describing the preeminence of Christ, that nothing is higher than him, nothing is greater, nothing is better. He has created all things, reconciled all things. And Paul ends here by reminding us and encouraging us to continue in our faith of Jesus, not to shift away from him, but to be rooted in him, having the foundations of our lives secured in his gospel, needing nothing else but Jesus, because nothing else can compare to Jesus. He is greatest. He is our leader. He is foremost. He is best. He is ultimate. He is more than enough. Praise God for the incredible gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We praise your name for all that you have done for us. We thank you for the gift of yourself, Lord, for the blessing of your Son, our Creator, our Savior, uh, and for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit within our lives. God, I praise you that there is nothing that we need apart from you, that you alone have saved us, that you alone are redeeming us to yourself. Lord, help us to live our lives out of our faith in you. Help us to be rooted in the hope and truth of your gospel and help our love for you to overflow from our hearts to all those around us. We love you and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.